This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey everyone, if you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. And now to today's episode of Rao Pal Real Vision. When change comes, opportunity abounds. We're about to enter a period of the fastest pace of technological change in all human history, something we refer to as the exponential age. And Real Vision is going to be your guide to this incredible future. Geordie, fantastic to get you on Real Vision. I cannot believe we've been going nine years and you've not been on Real Vision. It's inexcusable. It's been a long time since we've seen each other, Raul. Yeah, it's a very long time. We had parallel careers for a while. So let's... Um, Let's go through your career a bit because it's mm-hmm. a lot of good stories because you and I knew a lot of the same people. We were kind of in the same circle. So talk us through a bit of your journey to where you are today. Yeah, finance was not, I don't think, where I was supposed to uh, end up. Uh, my uh, my father was and still is, even at the age of 80, a uh, he's a core driller, which basically means he's a construction worker, but he invented all his own equipment and the reason that's important to the story is number one he's got kind of an engineering mind so i i did have some dna for for math he taught me game theory and horse racing and poker and chess and everything when i was young wow. which again goes into derivatives and everything eventually uh but he didn't graduate high school and so i didn't have a love of school so my path to wall street was non-traditional in the fact that uh it took me a little while to figure out what i wanted to do in school and how i could stay uh let's say, uh, attentive. My grades were always good, but I really didn't enjoy the sage on the stage routine. Uh, it bored me to no end. And I, again, I think my father had an influence, but I ended up um, joining Morgan Stanley somehow uh, at uh, as a controller. And within a year, I was building risk systems for exotic options and for the the, the derivative side, just because I think I, I had really good math skills, but also some little bit of coding skills. And that gradually left to working with the option traders and then someone who uh, was trading Latin America eventually just said, hey, why don't you uh, come work with me? You seem to know a lot about everything now that you've built systems and you've broken down the Black-Scholes model. So I went to the desk and started trading options and the first book I got was Mexico in 1994, uh, two months before the devaluation. (laughs) That was in FX rates or? Equities. Equities, right. So equity derivatives, which again, for Mexico, uh, meant you were also trading currencies and fixed income, because most of the book was in uh, split between pesos and ADRs, which meant you had currency risk, as you know. And uh, that meant that I was trading coberturas and a whole bunch of interest rate uh, things related to Mexico. And two months after getting my first book and trading, the devaluation occurred, and it was 
kind of a, a messy Christmas time. I spent a lot of time, but luckily the guy who handed me the book had hedged in all the risk. And so like I, I learned very quickly my first lesson, which is if something big happens and you don't get hurt, the amount of opportunities that exist during the chaos, and that goes for all markets as we know, uh, I, I was able to make a lot of money and it led to me uh, getting offered to go to Brazil and, and open the office for the firm there uh, at running trading. And uh, that was in 1997 and right before the, the emerging market crisis. I was there for that one. We did exceptionally well and they brought me back to take over the S&P book in uh, 1999. So that was kind of my uh, my career from starting as, a, as almost a, an accountant who had no love of accounting and eventually getting into the derivative side stuff. But you also were a macro guy because when we kind of overlapped, I think, well, I was in uh equity derivative sales at goldman so i kind of knew of you from then and then at glg you were like you know the street's chosen one for, for option trading and you were a macro guy at heart right always the time in brazil had a huge uh influence on me i i got the chance especially uh you know one person i'll name who maybe you you knew but andre jakorski was a had a huge influence on me he ran uh he was one of the original pactual partners and he ran a hedge fund there and being in brazil uh i was trading most of the volume <laughs> with these guys and uh talk about a market where there was a lot of insider information. I was getting run over a lot, but the good thing was I had earned their respect because I could handle myself. And what it really taught me in Brazil was all about inflation, GDP, the relationship. And I started to pick out patterns in kind of the way things moved. And then when I came back to the US, I had already spent a lot of time with ECRI and a bunch of other places just trying to connect the prediction of the economy. And this is something that I think has become even more important for me now just because of artificial intelligence. But I always believed assets were a leading indicator for what was going to happen with, with the economy. And they would tell you a story. And I built GDP models for recession predictions based on assets as opposed to economic data because I thought it was more real time. And that led to me developing great relationships with a lot of the big macro shops because I was trying to tell them what was going to happen and not spending a lot of time telling them what had happened. And I tended to be early, but I'm an independent thinker who always is looking for you know, areas where maybe I disagree with the rest of the street. So that's where my macro side came. And I did leave Morgan Stanley in 2003, set up my own macro firm. I eventually, two years later, brought it into where I've been since 2005, which is Weiss. I ran a macro portfolio here for from 2005 to 2014. And then I, I shifted into running the business here, uh, which again, I, I still do all macro writing and I still love it. And everything that I think about is macro. Uh, but it's probably evolved a little bit to where I've focused a lot more on technology since 2013 and just the impact that it's having on, uh, let's say, traditional economics. And so I've migrated away from traditional economics and more to the way that uh, all the rising disruptive technologies are having an impact on a world that's changing rapidly. So it's kind of weird because I went through the same journey as well. <laughs> I know like, you did. I was such a macro guy like you. When I was at GLG, um, I'd hired a French quant because that's what you do. Yeah. Um, and he was building my models, which was my rate of change models to look at the predictions for ISM and yep. forward looking. You know, a lot of the stuff you were you were looking at as well. There was only a few of us doing it at the time. Um, I think I got the technology story much later than you, and now I'm kind of wholeheartedly believing that things have changed. Let's first go through 
your kind of macro view on the economy, and then we'll start digging into this bigger meteor topic because I think there's a lot there that people yet don't understand because macro people tend to be mean reversionists. Yes. And this is an exponential, and it's really hard. It's not even linear. It's kind of exponential, so it's really hard for most people. But talk me through where you think we are in the global economy, whether it's a very big picture or you know business cycle wise. Well, let, let me let me do it this way, and then you can you can pick it apart and see where you want to expand on it. Um, so I, the reason I brought up 2013, I wrote a paper called "Adapt or Die," and I forget all the other words in there, but it was tweets and all these things that at the time people were having a hard time, in my opinion, adjusting to. And the argument I was making was that there were a lot of things happening in 2011 to 2013, but the rise of apps, the app store and kind of software was not really meant for macro people because using traditional economics and GDP was about hard goods, not about the rise of software. And so that decade to me, I, the amount of times that I think people got negative worrying about a recession when all that was happening is we continued gradually to in, see these disruptive technologies go at such a fast pace. I went to Singularity University to understand a little bit more about the power of compounding exponential technologies and just what it means and how at some point I started in, I remember this in 2014 and 15, I was traveling around and I had this view that oil was going to go to zero. And the reason was because people couldn't fathom how much technology was going to make things more efficient. Breakdowns were happening in energy, meaning electricity usage, which used to be nominal GDP, was now declining while nominal GDP was going up. And I remember I talked to our utility PM, and he said, Jordy, th these are data going back forever. And I looked at it, and you could see that we were getting more efficient. And whether it was Nest or whether it was any of these things that eventually people had, the economy was changing. So fast forward to 2000. 19. So we come out, the ism sitting down below 50. We've gone through this whole trade war with China and everyone's starting to think that economics is coming back and we get a pandemic and then we print an enormous amount of money. So we increase money in a way that is just unprecedented, which we all know. And so we end up getting a move. No one thinks there's going to be inflation, but we print so much money that people start spending it from their couch and this goes on. We get inflation. I think we're still in the after effects of that, which make it feel because of inflation last year and because of everything that we're still in this traditional economic cycle. And so everyone's calling for recessions and everyone's going through it at a time when what I believe is happening is we're going through all that excess money where we raised rates incredibly fast and that'll slow the economy down and get it back. It'll get us not to have the problems that we had with inflation. It might take another two, three years to get all of that burping out of the system from the hangover of all the money. But at the same time that that's going on, the, num the most important innovation that's happened during my life, um, for sure, because of the ubiquity of it overnight, is artificial intelligence. And so I have this belief, as I did in 2014, that the future is where we used to make investments on a 20-year viewpoint. That was in a linear world, and we are now in an exponential world to where we don't know what solutions AI will come up with. We don't know what, you know, what it'll do to energy demand, energy supply, and new solutions. But I've kind of come to the decision that anyone thinking about, well, one year ago, that one year from now there'll be a recession, I, I just don't think that matters anymore. And so my overall viewpoint is that productivity is the number one story because of AI. And with productivity is going to mean we're going to need less people and less hour work to generate the same GDP. 
And that to me is a very powerful story for equities. And it's a very powerful story for inflation to come down faster than what people probably think. Uh, and that's where I kind of am on things. Not an optimist. I just think we're in a point where those are the number one things. Productivity boom from AI. Hey, everyone. We're going to take a quick pause and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm exactly the same view, which is quick, because you and I have not spoken about this. No. I just looked at this and thought, well, we've got you know this massive debt problem, aging demographics, everything else. Yep. The only way of solving this, if you look at, you know, if GDP is population growth, productivity, and maybe debt growth. Yep. Well, debt growth, we can't go any further. We blew that up in 2008. So everything is just now servicing debts. Population, we can't do anything about because nobody's having kids. So it can only be productivity. So I looked at the same thing, and that's I started developing this thesis called the exponential age, which sounds like it's exactly the same thesis as yours. And I realized, okay, this is going to be our solution. And then, you know, part of it, you know, and that encompasses all everything from from crypto and the efficiencies that that can create through to AI, robotics, genetic sciences, all of the things. Um, and then the AI nuclear bomb hits, and it's like. Like you, I said, well, this is, I think, the biggest thing to happen to humanity in a technology perspective may be equal to the splitting of the atom. Mm -hmm. And why those things, I thought of those things together, is I had exactly the same view for you, is the marginal cost of energy is going to zero. <laughs> I completely agree. <laughs> you know what's funny about that? So by the time we're done with this conversation, since we haven't spoken in, in a long time, um, I... I I think you and I are similar in one other way. I like to um, provoke thought, but sometimes I like to do it where it brings, let's say, a stronger emotion out very quickly. So when I used to say energy was going to zero, I started that in Texas and um, I, when I was traveling around. And, and I would say it was actually much more well-received than I would have anticipated. And this was when oil was probably about $70. It had come down from 100 to 70 and then it went to 25 it did go negative at some point, obviously, during that little point, and then it went back up. But now it's a completely different story because of AI. And what I was waiting for, and I'll throw this out because I don't know if you've said this, I, I approach things believing that whatever we worry about almost never happens. Uh, that's just a fact of life. 99.9% .9 of what we worry about on a daily basis just doesn't happen. And so I've always approached that with markets where I try to find what the biggest worry is and then I'll spend time. And if the assets are going the opposite direction, then I'm more interested. I'm like, well, everyone seems to think this is going to happen, but that's what's not happening. And they're not changing their mind. This is one of the most powerful opportunities that I can have. So the problem that I wasn't able to kind of figure out until recently was, well, how do we get rid of inequality? And so when I think of big problems like that, I think of technology and before we end this, I'll tell you how I see equality eventually working itself back out, because that's one that is really hard to think about in this world of capitalism. But that's why with crypto, with AI, 
I've kind of been able to connect that with what you said, which is, well, what about robotics? What about 3D printing? What a nano? All of these things will speed up because of AI. And what it means is all of these tools are going to come in here. And I wrote a paper about trust. And at the heart of capitalism, at the heart of things, is this trust that it's worth something. And that is kind of where my brain has been going with all these things. So that is kind of why when I read your stuff or when I when I wanted to learn about Web 3.0, I must have spent countless hours on the free uh, real vision uh, crypto. And I would watch as many of these things as I could to catch up. And now I'm doing the same thing with AI. So, Yeah, and I'm going through the same journey. Well, we'll come on to the equality thing because I've got some views on that as well that I think is driven by this technology. It's an... I have started to realize, and it sounds like you've got there before me yet again. Um, I don't know if you've seen that meme on Twitter of the bell curve, and it's called the mid-twit theme. No, and there's like seen it. the moron on the left, uh-huh. who's like the, the retail investor who doesn't understand anything, but yep. goes, I like Tesla, it's going up. Then there's everybody in the middle who overthink everything. That's where the worry zone is, the over-deep analysis of the plumbing and this and that and this and this. And then there's the Jedi master on the right says, I like Tesla because it's going up. Whatever it is, right? Yep. You know, I've been using it for, you know, money printer go burr, everything's going up. Whatever it is, that mass of humanity arguing and bickering in the middle is almost always wrong Yes. in these big picture things. In, in other stuff, fine. It's like, you know, I was watching it with the, you know, the more macro about the draining of the treasury general accounts and how bad that's going to be and blah and i could just see the excess thought process and i just thought it's going to be a (laughs) non-event if you've ever thought about it this way and i i probably first heard this from uh someone in the military in the air force who was uh, a brigadier general and he was he was referenced in the, in the paper I wrote in 2013 because the military was just starting to bring in some of these incredibly high tech inventions and innovations in there. And the old school generals that were you know 20 years older than him, they didn't want to make some adjustments, and it was frustrating him. So here was a, a, someone who worked in a in a organization with embedded hierarchy that was you know, very, very challenging to kind of break new things in. And that's what I felt by the time I left Morgan Stanley. I, I just, I was an entrepreneur that needed a lot more freedom because I wanted to adapt quickly. And if I was stuck in this, you know, assembly line job, it wouldn't work. So that, that distribution you're giving right now, wisdom is actually become a negative in, in my, like the, the more that you think, you know, at this point, the worse it is. And I think it forces you in the middle and who has the most wisdom. It's, it's people that are older. So when I try to explain to people why something like both crypto and artificial intelligence, and I know you know this, but I'm not sure most people do. I I think the easiest stat to figure out the, who's going to benefit the most is to look at the age of the, even right now, chat GPT, how much, what percentage of the people that use it are below the age of 55? Well, as of June, the latest data that came out in June, it was 92%. Um, and you can take it down further. How many, what percentage of the people are above the age of, or below the age of 35? Well, it's 66%. So two thirds of the people that use it are below the age. What percentage of the people that use it are in the United States of America? It's 13%. So crypto, you get similar type numbers. And as long as that's the side, the people that don't want to use it, that are worried about it, as you say, they tend to be older people and they tend to be people that have already been successful. And so 
I think this is really an age where the younger people have a huge advantage because they don't have to think differently. They're just growing up in this environment. Yeah, I mean, they take it for granted. It, it kind of is what it is. Well, everybody else is having to deal with change and change is hard for humans. They don't, they don't deal with it very well. So you see, there's a big brain on the, I don't know if you can see it. I have a, I have a photo of a brain up there. It's, it's, uh, it's all on cognitive biases. So it, it, it does get into the fact and almost all the books I have here are related to people not thinking clearly and getting emotional. So (laughs) you're exactly right. So talk me through the AI journey, because you've obviously, you spent time in technology, you kind of saw a lot of this coming You've been building your thesis, and then we all knew AI was coming, but then it came and got to 120 million people in five weeks or something stupid. Well, that, that so that point there is, I think, the thing that it didn't hit me until probably February. And I say February because I do have a friend who I've done multiple podcasts with who worked at, at Netscape originally and... Uh, has worked with the government in various ways, which as he says to me, I can't tell you everything that I did. And I'm like, okay, great. But let's just say he's, he was, he's a head computer scientist who is very active in AI. And what he said to me very early on, and he tweeted about this in, I think only a, a week after this came out, his tweet basically said, this will be the fastest trillion dollar company on record. And he and I spoke and I said, well, I got a kind of different view on these things. I think AI and crypto just brings intense competition and you can't get moats around your business because whatever idea you come up with, a million other bots have the same idea and they're all competing with each other. So I don't see how that happens. And, he's, and, he, and he looked at me and said, in the long run, you're right. In the short run, what this event does is it opens up AI to individuals which will accelerate, yes, bot creation. It'll accelerate using it in a, in a very important way. But it is literally like, and this is not just what he said, but what I've heard other people say, which is you have to think about this as fire or electricity. And you have to think about it as all these plugins, these softwares that were already built, now it's just like they get to use artificial intelligence. So it's an accelerator that is beyond comprehension. And the fact that, like you said, we're already over a hundred, hundred million users, the amount of data that's been done, the visits, it's just amazing. And for me, I only really started using it daily about six weeks ago. And it was when he said to me, you have to go take a Python course. You have to, for your job, use open source Bloomberg. You have to do this. You have to do this. And this is from someone with no financial experience. And he just said, when you do it, you'll get it. So just start with your content creation, your writings, you write papers, you're writing what, three a year? You can do three a day now. And he was right. I haven't got there yet. I mean, I've used it a little bit, but I haven't, it's hard to get across. What's hard I find about AI is we still are anchored on search. Yes. So we have this tremendous anchoring biases of I'll ask her a question, mm-hmm. not can you do a task for me? It's it's hard to it's hard to get over that that particular thing. The other th- so I've struggled with that to to do it, and I just need to force myself like you did to spend more time because I write a tremendous amount. Yeah, and I just need to trust it more. Come to New York. I'll I'll give you a, a half hour demo, half hour on how. Here's the best thing. When you do, you still read the newspaper? Mm, 
occasionally. I probably read the FT a bit. Okay, so that was the one I was going to make a reference about. So FT will call me occasionally, as they'll call you, and they'll they'll do an interview. So a lot of times, what I would say to the person, "Hey, if you want to know what I think you should be writing about, which will be tomorrow's news, call me up." And I remember the first time he said, it, "He's like, what do you mean?" I'm like, "Well, you're writing an article that you're hoping is going to get a, a lot of people to read it, but that means it has to be on something that people are thinking about." And the reality is the way I use ChatGPT is to write articles that I want to see in the FT. That's the best way I can start out for a thought. So like if you want to talk about like why is energy stuck at 70 and everyone is still saying we're running out and inventories are low and it's going to go higher. So when I see situations like that, I'm like, okay, there must be something they're missing. So write me an article on, let me start with EVs. What are EV sales? Write me an article about EV sales today versus what? The mark, what everyone was talking about in 2015 and 2017. And so it writes me an article that shows what people were saying back then versus what is happening now. And you and I both know that it's the surprise factor that makes things go on. People, they, ha- they build in these linear curves of usage of EV sales when the number got there far faster and the rate of change is actually accelerating. And that's the point of like using this. And I'm doing it now with energy demand because if we're consuming 100 million barrels per day, AI should be able to take that down to, I don't know, there's there's at least 30% waste in all demand on the planet, no matter what it is. So how fast can it get that 30% and say, hey, turn all the electricity just shuts off. Everything just shuts off when you leave a room. How long will it take for that? It'll take time. But with ubiquity of AI, the same way we had ubiquity of smartphones, it'll happen at a faster pace. And I think the energy curve knows that. I just don't think energy people know that. So that's the way I use it to get me articles that I want to see. And all it's doing is taking all the text on the internet, which means that's what a reporter is doing because they're writing news. They're not writing the future ever. Hey, everyone. We're going to take another quick break and hear a word from our partners. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. And how do you deal with the GPT-4 finishing in 2021? Or do you use it via Bing or something else to give it currency, current news and information? So there, there's a couple of things. I'm moving on to some of these um, these other bots like AutoGPT, which allows you to use both ChatGPT-4, but then also your own data and your own information, which gives you the ability of kind of downloading all of the things you get from Goldman Sachs on the EV market and all this stuff and from a folder, and then it can use that information as well. So I'm migrating more towards that. With that EV1, it, it did provide the information from what was happening now. So the one thing about GPT-4, which I don't think people have fully got, it does stop at 2021 for a lot of statistics and things, but it does come up with answers for where things are today in certain ones. So I've had no problems with writing articles on this. Where I do run into problems if I say where the S&P is today or where oil is today, that it won't do. But it would if I just connect it to a folder that has all the information then in there as well. Also, there's something about this that I'm starting to realize is it it was a conversation with Sam Altman and Lex Fridman. Mm -hmm kind of stopped me in my tracks because 
Sam said, honestly, Lex, you don't think we've actually built AGI. And Lex sat back in his chair and just said, I don't think so. <laughs> right? And that stopped me because one thing I realized is you've seen the, the movie or, or read the story of DeepMind Go. Yep. And how at first it played the game kind of as expected, then it lost a game, and then it never played a game in a way humans had ever played it ever again, and it never lost, yep. ever. Yep. So that tells you it learns in a unique way. And I hear these people saying, well, this is just a stochastic parrot. I'm like, no, no, no. This is something that learns in ways we don't yet understand, which is when you say to me, actually, I can get current information out of it. Mm-hmm. That tells me it's come from somewhere. If the training model doesn't give it, yep. it's pulling it from somehow. And that's what the Go thing taught me. And we've heard this from people coming out of Google X. Mm-hmm. They've kind of said, listen, we don't know how this learns. And we, typical humans, just impose our own thought process on it. So so I, I just think it's like speaking to somebody in a foreign language. Maybe your Portuguese isn't great, so you're in Brazil. Yep. You can get a half conversation through. You can't tell if somebody's smart or not because you don't know how to speak to it. Correct. Which is what I think it's, is happening here. What, how intelligent do you think this is? So I, I don't think it's uh, – let, let me break down where, I, where I've kind Without of – Without getting this. over semantics yep. of intelligence because I don't think it matters. Yes. So I, I'll take you through just from – so when I say I'm using it every day, I'm on average I would say three to four hours a day, okay? So – I'm when I'm when I'm commuting, when I'm sitting at home. So on the weekends right now, and I become obsessed with just things of curiosity. The more curious you are, the more important this tool is. So this is what I've seen just in the way I write. I don't know if you've read anything that I've ever written, but I write in a way that matches up with, I think, when people say comfort food. So when you hear comfort food, people think about things, memories they had that they grew up with. It makes them feel good. So I think great movies are like comfort food. I think great writings are like comfort food. There's tons of bad movies. There's tons. They don't leave an impact. And you're like, oh, yeah, I forgot that movie. The ones you remember, there's some touch that touches you, the human. It makes you feel like you went through the experience. That is where the line is for me with artificial intelligence. And I'll tell you why. So I use analogies for all of my writing. So I was just, um, as we were talking beforehand for a second, we had a meeting with the interns. And the interns were giving a presentation to a lot of people at the firm on the ways that they, as juniors in college, have already used uh, artificial intelligence with inside the firm. So GPT, they've been given projects, they wrote a power presentation, it took them a second, like literally, they just gave the information, it created a beautiful PowerPoint presentation with all these visuals and stuff. It took no time and they just used a bot that exists out there. They didn't have to do anything. They just brought the bot in it, they did it um as as they're showing this i'm watching some of the older people and they're not understanding where this is going and they're kind of describing it and when everything was done i said hey guys so while we've been doing this i wrote three papers now i'm going to show you one of the ones i wanted to write one of what i was watching in this whole thing which was 
older people and younger people trying to come towards the same goals. Now, I don't know how familiar you are with uh, hockey in the, in the U.S. in the Olympics, but the 1980 U.S. Olympic hockey team has special memories to not only me, but I think a lot of people in the country who, who were around to see it. It was one of the biggest upsets in sports history, uh, beating the Russians at their own game and all this stuff. But the thing about that team was it took – a group of people from Boston and a group of people from Minnesota. Minnesota was playing more of a freewheeling hockey style while Boston was playing the more aggressive, pounding, you know, uh, forceful game. And Herb Brooks decided that the best way to beat the Russians was to combine these two totally different styles together to work as one cohesive unit because they were different. Well, that is the way I wrote the paper as an analogy for ChatGPT working with humans. Now, I haven't posted it yet. I didn't finish it yet. But ChatGPT helped me create kind of the, I'm 90% done. Now what I'm going to do is I'm going to go sprinkle some salt on it, some pepper. I'll balance out the flavors a little bit to use some cooking analogies. And all of a sudden, it's my own paper. And when people read it, they don't feel like it's a bot because it makes them remember what happened with the Olympic team. And that's where I don't think AI can get to yet because it can't understand what people want to buy, what they want to use. And at the end of the day, when you buy market, you're betting that other people are going to buy it as well. When you buy a shoe, anything like that, there's some belief that other people are involved. So at the end of the day, we're all just chasing the momentum of human behaviors. And I don't think AI is there yet. Yeah, but I, I mean, I, I really agree with that. But I also, and you've probably got there as well, probably before me again, is I've realized the power of mimetics and how a meme is everything yep. and how storytelling is how humans construct our reality. Mm -hmm. Everything from money to religion sure. to everything we do, what we wear, what we buy, every single thing. And once you see that, you can't unsee it. Crypto really taught me that. Yep. Um, you know, as a um, good friend of mine, Melton Demira said, we memed a trillion dollar currency into existence. I mean, it's staggering, yes. staggering. <laughs> and, it, <laughs> and I think that, and I've been writing about this for a while, is behavioral economics is one of the biggest breakthroughs we've ever gone through. I mean, I can see it behind you on the yep. wall that you will think likewise. And I've always argued that big data sets plus behavioral economics equals it's almost an extraordinary superpower. And I think AI is going to deliver that because it will see through the human bullshit and realize what is the motivating factor. You know, why does one person buy the same T-shirt essentially in cotton? One pays 300 bucks and the other pays 10 bucks yep. outside of their income. You know, it's, it's all storytelling that we tell ourselves. Well, I think so. I completely agree. And actually in a paper I wrote a month ago, uh, which was all on after SVB, which was about the breakdown in trust and why this would be the Bitcoin moment, which I still believe. I think Bitcoin has benefited dramatically in the last seven months, A, from AI coming out, which I believe increases the inability for people to know what's real. So storytelling, it's, it's breaking down truth. And so if people can't trust things anymore, then all of a sudden you're breaking down. So I completely agree. And I actually used... Um, sapiens and a bunch of the work that harari wrote on this thing of the greatest story ever told money and all the religion everything i, I used the same yeah <laughs> <laughs> we're going down the same path and that's why i actually do agree and here's the thing 
who still believes the most in stories? It's older people. Younger people aren't as attached to the stories because they're moving their brains so much. And the stories tend to be shorter. Exactly. In 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 the the memes don't last as long. Yeah. And they're comfortable with that. But we want to tell ourselves the stories of white picket fences and muscle cars and you know the 1950s and okay what how many let's 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 just use exactly this so let's take stories and how short they last into our markets stories come up and they become the center focus for like two to three months and then they just disappear so svb there'll be no lending the banks everything will collapse credit will be gone we'll have a recession real quick svb is the story deposits are going to flight everything's on and now we just don't hear about it and we've moved on to ai ai was one of the greatest things but came, it became the new big story the uk pension problems in november december was a big story evergrand a year and a half ago the zero covid like all these stories happen they're narratives and they dominate the markets they just don't last anymore as long as they used to because the markets just adapt to them. They get tired with them and they move on to the next one because it's all about what's going now. And I think that is a representation of what you were saying, that the storytelling in the meme world, everything's just faster. And then it it goes away because people are looking to answer why things are moving and why they're unhappy or why they're losing money. And they need a story. They need an answer when the reality is there is no answer. It's simply not as simple as one thing. So I completely agree with you. Also, I went down the, the journey of following the whole GameStop story, which was, I think, an extension of Occupy Wall Street. And I think it's an extension of the inequality of society where young people got saddled with debt straight out of university, assets were too expensive. So YOLO becomes the only way. Buying lottery tickets, I think it's changed the structure of how people invest. They have their 401k, which has created passive flows that are immense, that are ongoing. And then it's created this option style culture that I can see what I, what I love to observe is the angry people and think, why are you angry? It's like, this is not how you should treat financial markets. This is not how you should treat risk. I'm like, says who? That's just the story you told yourself. But, you know, I, I just find it fascinating. So take it, take it one step further. So at the end of the day, when we use terms in the markets like momentum, and I say, okay, so what's momentum? Let's break it down into narratives. Momentum is just what narrative is working and which one is not working and that's it. And so what AI is really good at, and if you, you know, I always tell people 60 plus percent of the direction of open AI in terms of people coming to open AI comes from YouTube and YouTube has everything. It's just amazing how much you can find on YouTube. But if people want to go play around on this, go type in, how to build a trading bot in ChatGPT. And you'll find videos after videos of kids building them and they're involved in the markets. Now, if you want to build one, the first question you say is, I want to invest in what's been working. I just want to be what's been working. Tell me what's working and create a portfolio that would have been up 30% so far this year. So if you want to create a momentum portfolio, it's a press of a button now, and then you can send the stuff down and you can have your portfolio on. So momentum sharp ratios over the last, two years. Last year was a great year for macro. This year hasn't been a great year. And if you look at what's happened to the sharp ratio of momentum, uh, I've said that business cycles went from being fairly circular during my life and now they're oblong. And they just, they're really like pulled out like a rubber band where they tend to go up, but then they come down very quickly. And so when people are in, in trends, 
I think what's going to be going on more and more is you'll make money for, you know, whatever, two months, and then you'll give back most of that in three days. And then you'll have to decide whether you want to stay in the trend, put more of it on or switch it and go the other direction. But your sharp ratio is collapsing on this stuff. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that we've opened up trading in bots with backtesting to everybody on the planet. And I, so I, I made the decision a while ago, having noticed this, we saw it in high frequency trading. We, you know, it's been happening over our careers. And I realized that the edge, I mean, the reason I left GLG in the end was because I realized that even though you're, People say they mark you on an annualized basis. You're marked on a month-to-month basis. So you manage your positions on a three-week basis. Yep. And it's like, and I'm trying to have a macro view on a three-week time horizon. It was Paul Jones who told me, that's madness. The best <laughs> traders have time horizon that matches with their um, investment time horizon. And so I just went out longer term. Yeah, Because then when you look at these trends, and particularly I started to use log trends for all of this stuff. Yep. It just gives you a better, much better understanding that the biggest arbitrage I think in life now is the secular trend, um, and playing that, and not not trying to trade the short term. I think there's much, and I think I've proven it out in GMI over 19 years in Global Macro Investor. I think I've, it's probably had the best returns of any single newsletter, and it's not because I'm a genius; it's because I just chose a different time horizon. Yep. No, and that's a fair point. And by the way, when when you start bringing up log normal trends. You really have no choice when you start getting into crypto, so that makes it even <laughs> even easier to kind of uh, uh, justify it. But I completely agree, and I think that is what's happened: is there's a mismatch between the investors, what they want from you each month, what they're comparing you to. But it's the nature of what the hedge fund world has been like, and if anything, I think it's actually speeding up. And now that you've reset risk-free rates up to five and change, uh, that'll be another thing that kind of changes the way people are measured and benchmarked on all this stuff. And in the event that this stays up here, which I think it will for at least another year, if not two years in terms of I, I just can't see rates coming down just because I can't see there being enough job losses to justify it. Uh, and whether or not that's true, I just think we're stuck at a point where the benchmarks have been reset to higher levels which is going to force all businesses and companies much quicker to adapt to artificial intelligence. And that's the reason why we're having all these meetings internally, because I can sit there and look at the business and think, is it easy to start and replicate a business with less people? Absolutely. With artificial intelligence, you can absolutely start a business and replicate many of them with less people. The question is, can you shrink big businesses fast enough by incorporating artificial intelligence? Because there needs to be a buy-in from people. Um, and rather than think about it, we're not a big company. We've got 110 people. But I want these. I want everyone here to realize that if they use it, it makes the firm more profitable because we, at a minimum, we don't need to hire more people. And that's what you're starting to see more and more as people are realizing that it's a pr- productivity boom and it gets us back into that point of, Productivity is really important for economics. It's really important for corporate profits. It's really important for a lot of different things, including the balance of life. So, <laughs> Yeah, and one of the things I've been thinking about is coming back to this productivity thing and the energy story is inflation-adjusted price of a, a barrel of oil has been about 40 bucks for about 60 years. Yep. Now, productivity has been going up from technology, but this has been the anchoring because really it's it's – calorie in productivity out or, mm-hmm. or kilojoule or however you want to measure it the moment that that goes from 40 bucks to 10 bucks that's a 3x multiplier on productivity that's what people don't get i think this is what actually what europe's trying to do 
I think there's a win-win-win here is, yes, we'll take some short-term pain, but if we can get rid of the need for fossil fuels, geopolitically it gets us better off. Yep. And it's going to dramatically lower the cost of energy so we can deal with the aging population by productivity. So you, this has been a belief I've had for a long time, and, and I'm sure, I don't remember the last time you were in Japan. But I, okay. I, I had a unique, um, as someone who loves to travel and, and loves to take kind of the old school Jim Rogers approach, which is when I first went to China, I didn't want to go visit the government. I wanted to go to the clubs and I wanted to kind of go on the road and maybe not with a motorcycle, but go see what the country was like. And I would spend about a month of the year in China uh, in two separate trips. So two weeks and two weeks. And I would just travel to various places and see how the change was happening. And it was I mean, compared to what was happening in the U.S., it was exponential. The one place I had never traveled to in my entire career was Japan, which is amazing considering even at Morgan Stanley, I never went. I traveled all over the world. I'd been, I've been to almost every country I think that, that honestly you could go to through business and through travel, but never Japan. And so I went to Japan for the first time probably in 2016 and after hearing for 15 years in the business how Japan never grew, how there's just, you know, they've had deflation, nothing's happening. And it was, it functioned better than any country I had been in. And it was amazing to think that a country that had decreasing population, every restaurant you ate in, the food was great. Every place you went, everything was clean. The bathrooms in the airport, everything functioned perfectly. And that was when I realized that, oh, so maybe declining declining populations is not going to be bad but also japan had invested an enormous amount in artificial intelligence in robotics and was preparing for that day and that made sense that that would be the solution so i completely agree that there's a labor shortage right now in europe and the us because of demographics rolling off and because younger people are more drawn towards flexible hours and building their own stuff and crypto. And I don't see that ever changing. So we're going to continue to lose people in jobs that they don't want. They don't want to be truck drivers. They don't want to be the stuff. So we have to accelerate innovations and technology and artificial intelligence absolutely is speeding up because we need this stuff now. And that means as a business, you have to focus on how not to grow with people, which is what we always did, is grow with people. Oh, I need another person to do this. I need another person to do that. And I've heard that internally, even with AI, where people are like, well, why don't we hire someone to go build the AI stuff? I'm like, no, you can do it yourself. Like, we can actually use this to get more productive. So I'm, I'm in agreement with you. This is a game saver for what was a labor shortage problem. Yeah, and I think GDP per capita over time will go up, um, which I think is a is a is a very big deal, because that's the Swiss told me this. I went to see the Swiss National Bank many years ago. And they're like, we don't really care about deflation. We don't really care about GDP growth. I'm like, why is that? I guess we're rich. <laughs> old and we're rich. We just want to stay old and rich. <laughs> and that's where Japan was, for sure. It was going through the same point. So, yeah. But that gets back to the inequality. That's only good for the countries that are rich at that point. It doesn't help the countries that are poor. Yeah, exactly. So... The, what people are struggling with, and I'd love to hear your views on this, is right now people are assuming that it's all going to accrue to a few mega companies like Microsoft and that we're going to be slaves to the machine, essentially. Yes, we could all utilize it, but that GDP per capita is going to be a misleading number because it's actually going to accrue to, to these giant corporations and wages will never go up and we'll continue in the same trap. So talk me through your, 
your equality, how we can solve equality theory. All right. There, there, there's a bunch of things in here, but first I'm going to start with, let's just start with not with wages. Um, let's just start with net worth around the globe. So the, the numbers, according to most places, are somewhere in the neighborhood of four to $500 trillion of net worth, which includes everything. Uh, I've used this for one of the reasons why when people you know, want to think about crypto, which is $1.2 trillion as of today. Well, you got $500 trillion in this game being played over here called the fiat capitalist system, and then you have a trillion over here. As time goes on, more of that money will come this way for a really important reason, and that's inequality. So how does it move from- And, and trust as well. Exactly. Well, and, and that is the, we've, we've obviously had a populist movement. We've had the masses not be happy with what's happening. But at the same point, as I mentioned, 70% of crypto users are in Asia. Um, they're not wealthy. This is because of the numbers, the, the the rule of really big numbers. When you have most of the people and the people are don't have jobs, well, then guess what they get to do? They get to use ChatGPT a lot more than I do. When you hear me say I use it three to four hours, if a kid in the Philippines that's out of school and, and, and not working said he used it three to four hours, you, it, wouldn't, it, it wouldn't affect you the same way. But, well, you work at a company. How do you have time for this? Where is this going to be? And I have to do it in my commute time and in my weekend time because I like it, because I do have things to do here. So my son taught me this when um, Axie Infinity, and I'm kind of going through this in a long route, as I sometimes do, but we'll end up in the equality and it'll involve 3D printers, nanotechnology, Picasso's no longer knowing which one's real. It'll go through the whole thing. Uh, but I want to get this point out. Yeah, on, on, uh, you tell the story. <laughs> I'm, I'm sitting back listening. On Axie Infinity, which was something that was introduced to me, I got really interested in what, what it was doing from an economic standpoint. And when I started to see it, I asked my son, I said, hey, I'm going to sponsor you. I want you to go play the game. He was, you know, loved Fortnite, told me he was the best Fortnite player. Everything was great. And I said, all right, I want to get you on this. He lasted about a day. And I said to him, what do you mean you're done? He went, I can't win. Wait, you're going to give up on day one? He's like, no. This, you have a good brain for pattern recognition. If you would have seen how insane these players were, I just couldn't do it. And I remember sitting there and I go, why do you think that is? He's like, I don't know how long they play, but I don't have time for this. I've got school. So I'd have to do so much practice to catch up to this. And that's when I realized that emerging markets have a huge ability or let's go back. The people who have nothing actually have an advantage right now because they have more time to use technology to learn and to not be driven by making what we all went to school for. So if you go to school and you go to an Ivy League, then you go back and you want to have more money than your classmates. What did you accomplish? What went on? If your bar is really low, when you're the son of a core driller, I remember when I got paid $33,000 my first year at Morgan Stanley, I said, I can't believe it. I'm close to 100. Once I get to 100,000, I might retire. And that was because I thought I could live off nothing because I didn't grow up with anything. Well, I can relate to the people who have nothing in the fact that, hey, we don't need as much money, but we're going to have the time. But here's the other thing. They would never work for the big companies. And this is the part where when people talk about like Microsoft, and these guys, you're still going to need some employees and none of the talented employees want to work there. And they want to move into this other world and this crypto world where it gives you more freedom. I've called it 
in country terms, it's what America was to a lot of people a long time ago. Well, that's what this world is. And it's going to keep drawing more people, especially as Bitcoin is going higher, because then the, the currency of it, of that little world is working and it's bringing the advertisement. Well, I think AI fits into the same side. And what I said to George Weiss, who has been a hedge fund person for 45 years, and he's done well enough that he has paintings by very famous painters. And one day I said to him, George, how do you know that Picasso was really painted by Picasso? And he said, well, I got it at wherever, Sotheby's, Chris, Christie's. And I went, all right. And I don't know, have you seen the Lost Leonardo? Okay. So yeah. the, the, the most, expensive paint, most expensive painting sold in the world was only like a $10,000 painting in New Orleans uh, about 20 years, 15 years ago. And then it was eventually proved after some work on it and everything, oh, this is a Leonardo da Vinci. And then it gets sold and it gets purchased for $400 million. <laughs> Nobody knows if it was really da Vinci. So if you wanted to replicate a Picasso with nanotechnology, artificial intelligence, and all of technology, you'll be able to have an exact replica where you cannot tell the difference. So authenticity is one of the important parts of the fiat system. The $500 trillion depends on the ability to have things authentic. So I said to George, overnight, if they can make a thousand Picassos, how much does your net worth go down if we can't tell the difference between them? So for all wealthy people there, one of the things that they as well are wealthy on is scarcity. It's what they've made their money on. And the problem is in a world of too much, or as uh, Peter Diamandis called it, abundance, I just don't see how the normalization of equality happens where people don't care as much. They have the ability of not working for these big companies. They don't they're in creating things and they're balancing out their life while the people that have worked really hard to make this stuff, they have more to lose. And so I've said equality will end up happening because the people who have more to lose realize they're dependent on scarcity right when we're entering true abundance. Yeah, I mean, brilliant. I've also noted that everything in a digital world goes to zero in cost. Yes. And blockchain technology was the one thing that stops it. You can have digital scarcity, right? Yep. Just at that very core level, that's the single most important thing. Because if not, nothing has value in this world. But also, the digitization of assets, digital assets, doesn't, or, or physical assets, doesn't matter, but let's assume digital assets, allows for tokenization, fractionization, yep. which means that everybody can participate on an equal basis. We can all put in 10% of our net worth, so it's not the Picasso because what happened is the rich people can afford the scarcest assets because they're super expensive. And rich people like to tell each other stories about how rich they are, so they want to buy more and more of these scarce assets. Mm -hmm. And they all benefit and nobody else gets to buy these things. But crypto changed that entire equation that I think is really important. And the other importance is authentication now with AI is – like, it is so important. We, we've got to go to the US election without authentication of content or people online anymore. And AI can make you different content, me different content. It can do it for a million people instantaneously. Yep. So it can manipulate us. And without digital ID, whether it's using zero knowledge proofs or something, we have to get to that. So there is a zero to a billion people, well, not zero, 300 million to a billion people phase from crypto that just comes out of authenticating humans yeah. and content. 
it, it, it's it, this is where when you start getting into this, it becomes very philosophical for people because they don't think about these things this way. But the reality is everything we said, I mean, you, you're scarcity, authenticity, um, the fact when the Bitcoin paper was written and then eventually when I first started to kind of pay attention when I read about the blockchain, that's when I became very excited because I was like, oh, this is amazing. So this will be the gateway to finally having proof of what something is, which is necessary in everything that we have. And we've entered a point where technology is going so fast that it's getting harder and harder to know what's real and what's not real. And I just did a podcast where I talked about Taylor Swift and her kind of impact on the blockchain. Um, it's amazing how some people and some artists in particular, because the artists are the ones that care so much about their, their ownership. So when Scooter Braun was selling, said he was selling off her songs, which are literally her, her, her diary basically. And she got angry and then she said, fine, I'm going to re-record all of them so that the ones that you have have almost no value that he sold. And it's amazing when you go through the numbers of the success she had doing this, where because of her community, the people who bought her albums, when they see, Hey, you can have the, the original Taylor Swift uh, download that she doesn't own or the one she owns and everyone picks the one she owns and the re-record. It's an amazing thing that really got back into the power of authentic authenticity, the power of the artist and what they own. And this will extend further and further, but it, it brings up your point of all of these things kind of come together. And I did this whole podcast because Taylor Swift has a community. She has gone through the blockchain in terms of saying, Hey, this is mine. And I'm going to prove that these are mine and it's there. It's not the official blockchain, but it's a way to do it. So I think all of these things are happening already and artists will be one of the driving forces behind it. Yeah, again, again, totally agree. Um, the um, I'm starting to think along, and I've been thinking about this for a while, but Balaji's book, The uh, the Network State, I think makes a lot of sense, that we are fragmenting into a multi-state world where we live in multiple states. Mm -hmm. One of them is a physical state. I live in the Cayman Islands, you live in the United States, but we live in online communities. And some of them are passing communities, others are really meaningful communities, particularly if there's culture involved. So the tokenization of culture, I think, is a huge thing. Um, and I've, you know, I think all cultural assets, music, entertainment, sports, all of these things, tokenization is a big part. But that led me down another path that I think that in a world where AI is one of the citizens of these digital states that we're living in, we might choose to do the most human thing to earn a living, which is to be a society member. And Web3 activates that. So I can be a Taylor Swift fan. I can promote Taylor Swift. I can make TikToks of her. I can be a good community fan. I can buy tickets and get rewarded in digital assets, yep. whether it's a, a cryptocurrency or whether it's NFTs or whatever it may be. And so now I've got something of value that I can sell and use and barter and chain. So I can, I can have a value exchange within that community. And it, either, it doesn't have to be fully fungible in the outside community. There's ways of... Therefore, using that, which is why Axie Infinity was so interesting, because yep. you started to see a currency being used for a reward system in a way that hadn't happened. And I think that could bring, like, it's a universal basic income mechanism where we can play an active, positive role in a community and get paid for it and not have to work for Microsoft. Yeah, and I, the example I've, I've tried to give to people who, who don't jump into the Web3 world and kind of think about this is the, to use Justin Bieber as an example where, you know, 
again, Scooter Braun goes looking, finds this talented kid on YouTube, and basically signs him to a deal where he owns the majority of Justin Bieber because Justin Bieber, he's he's a nobody, but he has, say, a million viewers that are watching his stuff. He already has a community. But this is before this kind of concept that you said about people understanding what they could do, where instead of Scooter Braun, let's say, owning 70 or 80% of Justin Bieber, the viewers, the, the, the million viewers could all have royalties to the first album he puts out. And he goes, I'm going to put the first album out. Uh, everyone who gives me a dollar will own the royalties, some percentage on the royalties of every down. And you're investing in something that you believe in. It's something you like. And that is this sense of community where it defeats the capitalist system and it happens almost overnight. And that's the one thing I will say, and you know this because I'm pretty sure I've, I've, I've read some stuff that you went through this too. One of the things that has become very evident with technology is the lifespan of a company. So where the Fords and the GEs, which are still trading are from the 1900s, the average lifespan of a company with inside the S&P 500 used to be in the 30 to 40 years during the 70s. And then it's gradually gone down as computers have come and it got down into the 17 year number. Well, when I talked to the person who did the podcast with me, who who is part of OpenAI, and I said, well, what do you think is going to happen with this kind of concept of a trillion-dollar company? He goes, I think five years from now, at least a third of the S&P companies at that time don't even exist yet. They're still ideas. And that's what I've said at the end for tokens and for everything. What is a token? It's not money, people. It's an idea. Everything about you're creating something, it's an idea. You sit in, in a garage and you create an idea and eventually that becomes Apple. Well, now you come up with an idea and a community of people agree with it and they want to be participating in it. And maybe it's only in this tiny little place. And like you said, it has no borders. It could be a few people in Africa, a thousand people in Brazil, a bunch of people here. There's no more borders. The network state, all that stuff kind of fits into where you don't need it. And everyone just is part of that community. And there's a little ecosystem that goes, well, that sounds like the opposite, all of it, to globalization to me. So deglobalization, how fast companies and ideas can come and having these little communities all over that are part of the world in a different globalization world, but without borders. And I completely agree that that's the direction we're headed. It's just a question of how long it takes. But the issue is, I mean, again, we share the same vision. The issue is, is how the hell does the global infrastructure, the the kind of rules-based global order system deal with this because it's all built around the the um, nation state and it doesn't exist. Not really. I don't know if you've ever had Marco Papich on, but he wrote a great yeah. okay. He wrote a great paper on this on on the metaverse breaking down the nation states and and I and I always leave this stuff to him. He's a good friend, but uh, I I think your point and this is the way I kind of view it with everything. I use autonomous driving as as an example. If you go back to a McKinsey report on disruptive technologies in 2013, and you go read through all of the ones and how when things will be in place. Autonomous driving should already be in place. Um, everyone sees that car with the funny thing on it driving around New York at some point. The reason it's not there is because the politicians won't allow it to happen fast enough because until nobody dies, we can't have it in there. So I agree that um, politics and the regulatory side will make it more challenging for these things to get through. And it is one of the reasons why 
artificial intelligence is so important because they can't keep up with this one. I don't know how they regulate it. It's actually funny whenever they try to regulate it. Uh, the UK I just saw was trying to like content is now data. And if you use content from the internet, you got to pay this person. And I just don't know how they're going to possibly be able to try and get this through. So it, the inertia will be there, but uh, that's why I say it'll take longer than it should, but it will happen. Fast. Yeah, that's my argument with like US crypto regulation versus others. Like it doesn't yeah. care. It doesn't matter. <laughs> Capital is global. It will find a way. Something like AI, also genetic sciences. We've tried to do that as well. Stop that happening. Yep. It's like you can't because if the prize is that big, it will just move everywhere until you have to give in and let it into your country. Yeah. And uh, and this is, again, where emerging markets should benefit because they'll allow people to come in and do this if people are going to pay the money and give them some ownership and things like that. So I have viewed it. It's one of the things about this that I don't think that mega cap companies are the biggest, the people that benefit the most. I don't think that's any way, shape, or form. I think smaller businesses, again, that don't have people that can take little bits and pieces of the businesses. I think year one, absolutely. And for the people that have the fuel, like NVIDIA, absolutely. You can't, it's really hard to to get around the fact that some people have a monopoly on certain parts of it. Uh, Microsoft, to some degree, too, because of their investment in open AI and the fact that this will be brought into I mean, they already have office in, uh, in, in so many people's hands already that it'll be distributed quickly. But the reality is you can't stop people if they want to go someplace else around the world and find the regulation where it's less. And crypto and AI both offer that exact same thing. So look, I'm definitely going to get you back because there's so many things I still haven't talked to you about. But I want to, a lot of people struggle with, okay, what do I do now? How do I invest in some of this stuff? Now, you would say, I'm sure, same way I would, invest your time in learning it because you can really move the dial much more than buying a stock that goes up. I think that's the size of the opportunity is your trade-off of time as you're doing yourself, showing people the way and even telling me I need to do more of it. It's, it's super interesting. But if not, I mean, I've kind of nailed it down to some things like semis because that everything has to go through a semiconductor right now. Um, and I'm, you know, a couple of the big companies because it's obvious. Tesla seems really wildly obvious to me. Now, what are what are your thoughts on, or just even the Nasdaq alone? Yeah, I, so I, I I've kind of gone between this for the time being. Uh, when innovation is working, and if you believe innovation is working, I 100% want Bitcoin as my favorite thing. Whenever innovation I'm, is working, I'm the same. I'm the crypt. Crypto is my biggest bet. I, I'm more ETH than Bitcoin, but other than that, it it's the matter. same. Yeah. It's the fastest horse in the race. It's the fastest horse, and I've kind of broken it down to to a few things. So money supply is shrinking right now, and yet Bitcoin's doing fine. Now, one of the reasons is because Chinese money supply is growing or was growing for a period of time, but the yuan is now weakening again, so you're in this weird period. But innovation's working meaning the NASDAQ's outperforming the S&P, and you have everyone focused on an innovation. And when that's happening, Bitcoin should go up. When the dollar's weakening, Bitcoin should go up. And only because it's not a hedge against the dollar, but the dollar is the most important currency in, on the world. It is the currency of the fiat system. And so if you believe money is transferring from one into the other, which I do, then you should go. I wrote a paper on this at the beginning well, no, in the one I wrote on, on recently, I highlighted the Morningstar stats that if you included just 1% of Bitcoin with inside a 60-40 portfolio, 
no matter what time period you look at, you're outperforming. And that's the point about it's gradually getting more introduction and in what's happening now with Fidelity, the rumors around BlackRock, everything, you're going to have more ability to get it in a way that you can feel more comfortable. And that's one of the things that's amazing that it's actually up 80 something percent and 60% year over year, despite everything that's happened with FTX and everything else during that time period. That's another one of those things that, wow, could the news have been any worse? And it's still, you know, at one year highs as of today. So I do think Bitcoin, I think the semi stuff is a no brainer because it has to. I'm going to throw, I always like to find some stuff that is not part of the equation right now. I really do think Brazil is a phenomenal place for this. Uh, The main reason is from living there, Brazil might be the most sophisticated country on the planet with, with economics. They live through hyperinflation. They have had their biggest trouble has been about corruption. It's about the lack of education Crypto and AI offer an enormous potential for this and education in particular. I couldn't figure a way for Brazil to catch up because their biggest problem was they just didn't have enough teachers. They couldn't get the education system going. But that's what YouTube is for. Um, The ability of learning this stuff, it's now ubiquitous again and you, you can get it. And the stay at home and the Zoom thing really picked up during COVID. And so Lula takes over. I learned my lesson in 2002 when he took over and everyone was worried that the world was going to end and EWZ was trading below 10 bucks and everyone was panicked and I had just come back and Morgan Stanley was sitting there and they had a meeting and they went, we want to pull out of Brazil. And I'm like, you don't want to pull out of Brazil when it's at when it's below 10 bucks. You want to pull out of it when it's at 100 bucks. Uh, they stayed in. It continued to go higher. And we just came off an incredibly weak period in Brazil and their currency got above five. And I think if I had to pick something for the next 18 months that made Maybe people don't identify as an AI crypto trade. It would be Brazil and just type in Brazil crypto, Brazil artificial intelligence, and you'll see a lot of creative people building a lot of stuff there. It's it's a great, it's a, it's a misunderstood country. And I think they're going to benefit dramatically from this. We're also seeing quite a lot of Argentina, same thing. Yeah. A lot of Web3 developers are coming out of Argentina because they need it. That's the whole point is they need it more than anyone. And that's the way you have to look at this and maybe not more than anyone. Well, let's just go through when you have inflation and you have corruption, you need this stuff. You really do need it. And so I just think these countries and those two in particular, they're beautiful countries. They're massive. They've got tons and tons of beautiful countryside. They just have always been the countries of the future. And I just think if that's the way you think about them, well, then AI and crypto is going to speed up the pace for them. I really do believe it. So maybe it's three years from now, you really start hearing about it. But I know that it's kind of the the seeds have been planted there. And I like to look for things that are trading at 25 year lows and things that look interesting. And I think Brazil is the place. So I'll get through Argentina in there too. Jordy, fantastic conversation. Uh, really, really amazing. I can't believe how many similar rabbit holes we've gone down and <laughs> similar conclusions. That's hilarious. But I'll definitely get you back. We've got lots more to talk about, but I really, really enjoyed it. I enjoyed it too, Raul. It's a pleasure being here. I, I'm, I'm very, very happy for all the success you've had in building this stuff and the content you put out is great. And I'm happy just to be a part of it. Fantastic. Okay. That was not what I quite expected. Um, Jordi and I had come from similar backgrounds, but we seem to have gone down exactly the same thought path. And he's the only other person I know who's done that. I mean, the similarity of our views 
was staggering to me. Um, and it's kind of weird. It was a bit freaky. But he's amazing. What an amazing thing to learn, to see, and to see how he is. I feel, he feels like he's got the edge on me because he's using ChatGPT more. He's come across some of these ideas earlier. I think I've got some more fleshed out on some things. He's got a lot more fleshed out on others. But, wow, I think that was an incredibly useful interview. I'll definitely get him back because I think there's a lot to talk about because we barely got into the companies and other innovations. We just talked at top level, and he's come to the same conclusion. It's all about crypto first and then technology second, and AI was the fire that exploded and is going to light this whole thing alive. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed it. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.